0: Well, welcome back to uh, Adult Sunday School. We're continuing on our our series uh, with the goal of eventually looking at the life and thought of Martin Luther, uh, the Protestant reformer from the 16th century. But on our way towards uh, to Martin Luther in the 16th century, we're sort of meandering here through church history, uh, focusing specifically on the question uh, of the relationship between uh, the church and the state or uh, the spiritual realm, spiritual powers and civil powers um, trying to ask the question, how is it that in the 16th century we find ourselves in a situation, or Luther finds himself in a situation, where um, the emperor and the pope seem to somehow together be ruling over Christendom, where uh, the church's concerns become the emperor's concerns, and the political concerns, uh, concerns of the state becomes the, become the pope's concerns. Um, there's this kind of mixture and intermingling of powers. Um, how is it that that's the case? Uh, why? And so we've uh, gone all the way back to, to the beginning, really as far back as we can go, um, and last weekend we looked at uh, the early church. Uh, from the time uh, of, of the death and resurrection of Christ, the church experienced primarily persecution and suffering. Um, it was sporadic uh, in some cases, uh, but eventually became fairly organized, systematic, across the empire particularly in the third century. Uh, and so theologians, when they, when they talked about the relationship of church and state, um, saw the relationship as, the, as one of, of two hostile cities um, at each other's throats, or mostly the, the state at the church's throat, um, and, and the kind of hostility and suffering uh, that, that we find in the ancient church. And then we uh, talked about the way in which that, that situation of persecution persisted for Christians, uh, until the conversion uh, of Constantine, uh, that day when he had a, uh, a vision in the sky, you'll rule uh, and conquer in the name of Christ. And so uh, Constantine goes on to unite the empire um, and, and makes it a Christian empire. So the situation is what we call Christendom, or sometimes it's called Constantinianism, um, after Constantine himself, uh, where you really, you really completely... can. Uh, wouldn't say confuse, well, you could say confuse, um, you erase the distinction between two cities. Um, and we saw, especially with that, that church historian I mentioned, Eusebius. The way Eusebius tells the story, Constantine um, is the hero. He's a Christ figure who, who saves and redeems the church and uh, inaugurates really the kingdom of God uh, in uh, the kingdom, the empire of Rome. Um, and so in, in, in Eusebius' early church histories, uh, actually I, I brought it, uh, his history of the church with me, in the very end uh, his history starts with, with Jesus and goes until Constantine comes on the scene. And, and he equates the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, with the peace of the church, that's prophesied and, and predicted in the Bible. The kingdom of God is the empire of Rome, fully realized. Um, it's interesting, he, we'll see if you recognize this, uh, this, this verse. Let me read just a little bit out of, uh, out of Eusebius. Sometimes I read long quotations to my wife at home, and uh, she's very polite, and at the end she's sort of, that's, that's wonderful, um, honey. <laughs> But I get very excited, so I'm going to read it to you, anyways. Uh, this is uh, this is Eusebius writing uh, in the in the third century, or sorry, in the fourth early fourth century. Uh, he, he starts out his history is written in the form of a prayer. Um, thanks be to God, the Almighty, the King of the Universe, for all His mercies, uh, and heartfelt thanks to the Savior and Redeemer of our souls, Jesus Christ, etc. He goes on, and he says, "I testify," and then there's a biblical quotation. See if you can recognize what's. I'll give you a hint already what psalm this is from. Come hither and behold the works of the Lord, what wonders he has wrought in the world, making wars cease to the ends of the world. The bow he will break and will shatter the weapon, and the shields he will burn up with fire. That's the end of the quotation. And then Eusebius concludes, happy am I that all this has been clearly fulfilled in my own time. Now let me proceed with the next part of my story. Does anyone recognize Luther uh, uses this psalm to great effect as well? It's it's the very end of Psalm 46. In fact, you can turn quickly to Psalm Psalm 46. A mighty fortress is our God. That's that's the psalm as we know it. Um, God is our refuge and our strength a very present help in time of trouble. And it goes on to describe how the nations rage. Uh, the earth, nature itself seems to be upset. The nations are raging. And then at the very end of the Psalm, there's this prediction um, that God come behold the works of God of the Lord. How he has brought desolation on the earth. He will make wars to cease. So this is a prophecy um, from the Psalmist. And Eusebius says, this has come in, in, in Rome, in the Roman Empire. Um, so there's an equation of the city of God with the city of man. There's no, no hostility between them. The two are the same. Um, and, and that's Eusebius. Eusebius is, is the first church historian. His ecclesiastical history was the account. that was uh, read and, in, and inherited for, for generations, for centuries even. So Constantine looms large as a hero in the early church, uh, ending persecution and, and announcing the peace of Rome, uh, a kind of fully realized uh, eschatology. That's the default position for, for much of Christian history, all the way up until really the 16th century. Uh, we don't see the, the crumbling of Christendom, of this situation until, until the 16th century. And then it's fully unwound and completely broken up Christendom in the 19th century, in the 1800s. So this is a, a, casts a long shadow over church history, uh, this particular interpretation of, of Psalm 46, uh, etc. Um, well, I think we concluded last week talking about the band of teenagers marching on Rome, uh, the Goths, with trench coats and dark eyeshadow. shadow. Um, uh, and it's true. Um, even though Christendom was the sort of default position, there were moments when Rome was under threat. And one particularly poignant moment uh, occurred in the early 5th century. So Constantine um, is, is the 3rd uh, to 4th century. Augustine is 4th um, to really the 5th century. 410... A.D., the Goths under Alaric come and sack the, sack the city of Rome, um, and everyone goes running, you know, um, uh, brutalizing the people, terrorizing the people. And so at that particular moment, there are two sorts of questions that are occurring to people. Christians who've accepted Eusebius' version of church history have all kinds of questions, Now the city of God, Rome, is being threatened. What sense can we make of this? Critics of Christianity are asking the same question as well, saying, well, maybe we've been sacked because of Christianity. Maybe we need to restore pagan Rome and get rid of the Christian influence. So there are a lot of questions about how to interpret uh, this providential sacking of Rome in 410. And right at that time, then Augustine writes, uh, probably one of the books that he's mo- most famous for in Christian history, uh, outside of his, his confessions. Uh, the City of God is the name of his book. The City of God, which is a, t- a term taken from what psalm? We've already read it. Psalm 46, the first couple of verses, uh, verse four in particular. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High, a heavenly city. So Augustine uh, actually resorts to early church precedent to distinguish again between the city of man and the city of God, a heavenly city, um, he calls it. He tries to, in other words, uh, draw new boundaries around the church. Um, The city of God is both the city that's to come but it's also a city that's already been inaugurated in the person of Christ. It's not yet fully here, um, but it has, how does the city of God have its its visibility? In the church. Not in any civil uh, or political uh, uh, nation, uh, but in the church. Um, And so it's a city that's both here and has its visibility in the church and is also the city to come. Um, that's, uh, That's Augustine's, version of of two cities uh, that are in tension. And the way he describes it in his City of God is um, the two cities are mixed and mingled. Believers and and non-believers alike live in the same neighborhoods. So um, the two cities can be distinguished but are sometimes mingled, right? Citizens of both uh, have to live together. And in fact, cooperate together, sometimes uneasily, Augustine says. The two cities, the city of man and the city of God, cooperate, but uneasily. They're wary of each other. So there's definitely tension, not not outright hostility, but but tension between the two cities. And a lot of that tension for Augustine um, is derived from the fact that these two cities have uh, two different sort of operating principles two different ways of of being governed. Um, One, the city of man, I'm going to run out of space here, and I lost my brother's (coughs) The city of man is governed by a principle of self-love. The city of God, or the heavenly city, is governed by Love of God. These two approaches to life contrast with each other and lead to a whole different set of priorities in terms of what's important. In fact, I mean, our, our sermon today um, is exactly about this. This is, a, this is Absalom and his concern for his hair, right? Um, this is the, the David Foster Wallace love of self, pride, being uh, the first priority, which then orders all of your life under it. The city of man is, is ordered uh, by self-love. The city of God is ordered by love of God, which recalibrates um, all your priorities and, and your values. And so a lot of the tension between the two cities is derived from the fact that there are these two uh, different kinds of love operating, self-love um, versus, versus love of God. <coughs> um, well, it turns out in history, um, Augustine's restoration of this strong distinction between the two cities is, I don't want to say a blimp on the radar, a blip on the radar, but it's it's certainly the minority report. Um, Constantinianism in Christendom will win out over Augustine's distinction between, between the two cities. This is written at a time, and Augustine has his, um, has his influence at the time when, uh, when Rome was being shaken. But eventually, Rome will be restored, right? The Goths will be driven out, and the Visigoths. Rome will be restored, uh, renewed um, as an imperial uh, empire. And, and eventually, the two cities in tension will have proven to be a sort of passing fad. It will inspire some, some popes and some theologians throughout history um, but but Constantine and Christendom is is really um, is really the default. So moving to the next uh, stage in our story, we're getting into the uh, medieval church now. Rome um, is restored. Um, we have a little bit of a reduced time today, so I don't want to take up too much time. But I'll give you two names here: uh, Galatius the first, um, and Gregory. The great, with a few qualifications, is essentially a return to Christendom. Um, What you find here is what's called the, I'm really ruining out of room, uh, the two swords. The two swords theory. Not two cities, two swords. Rome and the church are again virtually equated. Um, conflated with one another. There's one body politic, but there are two modes of governance over this one body. So the assumption is, again, that of Christendom. If you're Roman, you're Christian. If you're Christian, you're probably Roman. Um, but everyone in Rome, in the empire, has to be ruled, and and it's a sort of a division of labor. The church rules after or looks after Everyone's spiritual well-being, uh, using the sword or the keys of the kingdom, the sword of the spirit, etc. Um, Rome, the emperor, looks after everyone's bellies, um, their physical well-being. So there's a distinction. You see something of Augustine's influence. There is a distinction. Um, but not about the not over the people itself, believers and unbelievers, the church and the state. It's two different kinds of rule, two swords. Um, that's what you find in the uh, in the sixth, seventh, uh, eighth centuries. Um, eventually, the eclipse of Augustine. Some some recourse maybe to his his distinction, but but essentially the eclipse of, of an Augustinian um, theory of things. Well, the question um, in an, in a <coughs> in a context where um, it matters a lot to preserve a hierarchy of order. Who's in charge? And throughout the medieval period, the big question will be, whose sword is mightier? Who owes uh, fealty to the other, the pope or the emperor? Whose second fiddle does the sword of the state derive its power from the Pope? Or does the Pope receive his power as a gift from the state? Um, two swords can't be co-equal, was the assumption. Someone needs to be in charge here. And, and that question is there throughout the whole Middle Ages. Most of medieval church history is a kind of uh, history of the power struggle, the tug of war between Pope and Emperor uh, for supremacy. Over the other. And so consider a scene. Um, I'm going to erase this. Consider a scene at the very beginning of the ninth century. Charlemagne. Christmas Day of the year 800. Charlemagne is crowned emperor by Pope Leo III. Charlemagne, already a king, kneels down before the Pope, and the Pope places the crown on Charlemagne's head. So the two swords theory on Christmas Day in 800 had been resolved decisively in favor of the church. The church is supreme overall, and the Pope has the authority crown and make emperors. And so he makes Charlemagne one of the greatest emperors uh, of all time, maybe rivaled perhaps only by Constantine, certainly one of the greatest emperors of the medieval period. Well, how how does it come to be that the two swords question was settled so decisively at the beginning of the ninth century? It has to do with a legal precedent (coughs) enshrined in canon law A legal document called the Donation of Constantine. Now, this is a pretty fascinating document. It's a decretal from Constantine, uh, an official uh, uh, letter, in other words, from Constantine, telling a pretty remarkable story. Um, Here's the story Constantine. Writing describing his own situation, uh, describes having fallen ill, basically on his deathbed, horribly sick, and Pope Sylvester. Pope Sylvester comes to visit Constantine uh, on his deathbed and heals him remarkably. A miracle. Constantine's healed. And after he recovers, he he makes a donation. He makes a gift to Pope Sylvester. He's so grateful that he gives to the Pope full civil jurisdiction and authority over the Western Empire. Constantine, remember, he founded a new capital, Constantinople, named it after himself in the East, Constantine agrees in the donation of Constantine to rule uh, over the east from Constantinople. But in the donation of Constantine, he gives full legal and civil power to the Pope, including the power to anoint kings, establish emperors, etc. Um, that's the gift. Imagine the movie version of it today, right? United States President Donald Trump falls ill, okay? He's on his deathbed. Uh, uh, the Pope comes to visit him, which would have to be played by uh, Sylvester Stallone. Uh, Pope, Pope Sly comes to visit him, right? Donald uh, rises again, he's healed, and he's so grateful that he says, I will rule over New York City from Trump Tower but the whole rest of the empire, Pope Sylvester, I give to you. That's, that's, that's essentially what we're talking about. The d- donation of Constantine um, written into canon law and accepted by uh, Pope Sylvester and Charlemagne. I mean, Charlemagne clearly believes this. A king doesn't bow to anyone unless he really believes uh, God has, has arranged things so that he should bow. Well, what's the problem? What's the problem? What was I mean, this is an extraordinarily generous gift from Constantine. It's not biblical. Well, worse, uh, nothing could be worse than that. It's not biblical. It's a fake. The donation of Constantine is a fake document. It's a forgery. You just thought medieval church history was boring, didn't you? <laughs> it turns out uh, it's filled with all kinds of shenanigans. Um, (laughs) the donation of Constantine is not a 4th century document it's a fake a a fake that had been accepted as authentic authentic right up until when? the Renaissance right up until the Renaissance um, people believed that this was a real document and so that's how it wound up in canon law a couple of different scholars working independently proved that this was a fake. Uh, Nicholas of Cusa is one uh, in the like 1430s. Um, the more interesting man is uh, Lorenzo Valla, working in the 1440s, independent of Cusa. Lorenzo Valla, he was a great, a great Renaissance uh, humanist. He actually went on to become uh, a cardinal, loyal to Rome. But Lorenzo Valla proved decisively that this document, the Donation of Constantine, uh, was was a forged fake document, probably from the middle of the 8th century, around 750, is when it was forged, and it was sort of slipped into canon law. It was like as if everyone discovered this letter from Constantine, um, and they slipped it in. Well, it's a kind of curious story. I'm to get too far off track here, but uh, Lorenzo Valla uh, was, was hired to challenge a whole series of legal documents that the church was using by his patron, uh, a man named Alfonso, <coughs> uh, a Alfonso of Aragon, the Fons. we'll call him. Uh, <laughs> it turns out medieval history is populated by Hollywood personalities, who, who knew that? Um, uh, L- Alfonso of Aragon was involved in uh, a, a legal claim, a legal uh, case, a debate with the Pope over his own inheritance. Um, he claimed to have inherited certain papal states. The Pope said no, they're involved in legal brouhaha, and, and, and he hires this Renaissance lawyer uh, to get to the bottom of it. And, and Lorenzo Valla proves the donation is Constantine. I won't go into the details, uh, for a whole number of different reasons. For one, this document actually talks about the Goths and the Visigoths who sacked Rome. Well, this is claiming to be a letter written by Constantine in like 313, 314. And he, he died in, I think, the 320s or 30s. There's no way he could have known that the Goths and the Visigoths at the beginning of the 5th century would come to sack Rome, right? This is a problem. That's one of, of many problems with this, with this document. Um, <coughs> So the document um, in 1440s is, is proven to be um, a forgery, but not, not in the medieval church. Um, you know, there's, there's uh, an, actually a legacy of the donation of Constantine. Um, I mean, you can see references to the donation of Constantine and to that story uh, of Pope Sylvester healing Constantine, um, and Constantine making this gift uh, in Rome today. Uh, maybe, maybe someday we'll, we'll organize a, a sort of real, the real history of Rome tour, the real history of Italy with, with Reverend Brown. Uh, he can take us through. If you go to the Vatican City today, to the Vatican Palace, um, you can see a fresco, a huge wall painting um, painted by uh, the, the famous Renaissance artist, Raphael. Of this story of of Constantine giving jurisdiction, uh, and, and that was actually commissioned by Julius II, who was one of the popes in in, in, earth, in, in early youth uh, Luther's young life. Um, when Luther went to Rome um, as a young monk, 1808 18, uh, sorry, 1508 to 1510 or 11, Julius II was the pope. Julius was definitely a, a, uh, an Absalom-type character, concerned about his hair uh, and all that. Julius II is the one who um, laid the first stone of St. Peter's Basilica that you can see today. So this is in 1510, roughly, knowing that the document is a forgery, because Lorenzo Valla debunked it in the 1440s, knowing it's a, a forged document, nonetheless, commissions... Raphael, this great Renaissance painter, to put it up on the wall in the Vatican Palace, um, and so it's a curious uh, it's a curious legacy. Knowing even still that it's fake, um, there are all sorts of examples in in Roman Catholic uh, theology, architecture, art, etc., appealing to this um, to this completely fraudulent uh, story. Um, now I'm going to take us way off track, but that's not the only uh, forged document that Lorenzo Valla proved. He was like a, I don't know, probably a very nerdy uh, character, but a kind of like uh, Sherlock Holmes type figure. Um, he, he proved another document that was really important for, uh, for the debates in Luther's day and, and for all times. Um, Dionysius, uh, the Areopagite, who's Dionysius the Areopagite? Acts 17, Paul goes to the Areopagus and preaches. And at the very end of of Acts chapter 17, a man is converted. It's the last verse or two of, of Acts chapter 17, I think. Uh, now, when they, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will uh, hear you again about this. So Paul went out of their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also uh, were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris uh, and others with him. Well, church history knows of a great author. Author of many, many documents, uh, texts, works in theology, works in political theology, by one Dionysius the Areopagite. He's the most quoted source in Thomas Aquinas' Summa Theologica, his his big work of theology um, in the 13th, 14th centuries. Sometimes he just goes by a nickname, Dennis. People call him, (laughs) like Dennis the Menace. Um, He was a Dennis the Menace character. Um, He wrote uh, at least one treatise called uh, Ecclesiastical Hierarchies, uh, another one called Heavenly Hierarchies. He was a great philosopher uh, and theologian. And he, in especially the Heavenly Hierarchies, pictures a very hierarchical, as the title uh, might suggest, view of the world. I I mean, uh, it's a complete pyramid that's not a pyramid. There's uh, a pyramid in heaven with one person at the top and, and power flows down. <clears throat> Dennis, uh, Dennis's v- picture of hierarchy uh, was incorporated into canon law in order to argue for the supremacy and supreme authority of the Pope. Um, a whole no- host of theologians Argue for papal authority based on Dennis the Areopagite's um, work. Um, In fact, we haven't gotten to this part of the Luther story, but in in 1519 in Leipzig, Luther goes to debate a Roman Catholic scholar named Johannes Eck, and and they're debating primarily uh, the authority of the Pope. Luther says at Leipzig in 1519, Scripture has supreme authority based on Scripture's own testimony about itself. And Johann Eck says, no, the Pope has supreme authority. See the writings of Dionysius the Areopagite. He proves it. First century. He knew Paul. That's, that's the argument. Um, well, it's it's a forged, faked series of documents. Um, all the writings of Pseudo Dionysius. In fact, now history knows him not as just as Dionysius the Theopio- Areopagite, but as Pseudo Dionysius the Areopagite, or Pseudo Denis, is is what he's uh, he goes by. Um, still, a theologian who's, who's actually worth reading. It may seem strange. Very interesting, but definitely a seventh or eighth century figure, right? So, uh, Dennis claims to have, have written a letter to Polycarp, a first century martyr, at the time of persecution. There's a letter um, where, where Dennis claims to be writing to Polycarp, talking about um, talking about the the, the eclipse of the sun by the moon at the crucifixion scene. In fact, I mean, this is, this is kind of curious. Does anyone have a, a, an NIV, or sorry, an ESV study Bible here? There, there's actually, if you have a, there's actually a note dealing with the legacy of pseudo-Dionysius the Areopagite in, in your study Bibles. If you look in, in Matthew 27, um, where it describes the crucifixion scene, And it says, and it was getting late in the afternoon, and the sky grew dark. In the ESV study Bible, there'll be a footnote saying the sky growing dark was not an eclipse of the sun by the moon. Why in the world would that study note be in there? It's in there because the pseudo-Dionysius Theoreopagite faked this letter to Polycarp describing an eclipse. And all medieval church history believed that there was some kind of miraculous eclipse um, of, the, of the sun by the moon in the, at the time of the crucifixion scene. Well, Lorenzo Valla, I told you we would get way off track with this, but it's kind of interesting anyways. Um, Lorenzo Valla, like all Renaissance humanists, um, were interested in all the latest scientific discoveries. One of the things that the Renaissance is particularly known for um, is for their interest in astronomy, completely reconceiving the solar system, moving from a Ptolemaic universe where um, the Earth is in the center of the universe to what? A model of the universe where not the Earth is at the center but the sun's at the center. That happened at the time of the Renaissance, the Copernican revolution. Nicholas Copernicus writes uh, about the revolution of heavenly spheres in like 1410, right, right on the eve of the Reformation. And one of the things they argue is that, in terms of astronomical calendars, there couldn't have been an eclipse. So, whatever is happening in Matthew 27 was not an eclipse, it couldn't have been. And so, they use that scientific fact to debunk. Pseudo Dennis's letter to to Polycarp. Um, okay, now we're way off track, and I don't know how to get us back to track. Um, the point would be, I suppose. Um, you know, sometimes we let me make a polemical point um, because I think it's probably an important one. And this this day and age, it's so you know unpopular to make polemical points, um, but it's an important one nonetheless. Rome. By which I mean the Roman Catholic Church, is a great deceiver. Um, <clears throat> much of the claims for papal authority is, is just totally gangrened by fraud. And, and that's a pretty sober point. Um, it's an emotional one for me because I, I've had a few friends um, leave the Reformed faith and convert to Roman Catholicism. And I think they're deceived. They don't know the fraud. They won't acknowledge it. Um, so I turned a rabbit trail into an emotional point. It's all because uh, of Gramps Bartlett leaving. got me emotional. And, and so. <laughs> uh, so that's how Charlemagne... Uh, comes to be crowned in the ninth century uh, by, by Pope Leo uh, III. We have like three minutes left, so at this point it seems pointless to go on with the, next, with the next section. We're just creeping and crawling through the medieval church, but we will get to Luther eventually. Let's just take some questions. Yeah. I'm not entirely sure I, I, I follow, but l- let, me, let me try and answer them. See if it's the answer to the question you were asking. <laughs> uh, um, it is interesting. Theologians in the early church, the medieval church, and in our own day, we all tend to try to find ourselves in the Old Testament story in some way. Where do we fit? How is what happened in the Old Testament like today? And and so in the Old Testament, there are um, Periods of history where where God rules directly over his people. There are there are periods of we wouldn't call it Christendom or Constantinians, we would just call it a theocracy in the Garden of Eden, right? Um, in in the stories we're we're, we're hearing preached on uh and from first second Samuel, the, the monarchies of David, Saul before him, and Solomon. There are periods of theocracy where God rules directly. And some of those passages have to do with with those periods of, of history, um, but there are also periods where Israel goes into exile, and there is no theocracy, right? Um, Daniel, um, the whole people of Israel being taken off into Babylon, etc. And in those instances, we don't uh, we don't find theocratic divine rule. Israel, their will, Israelites are are uh, wanderers and pilgrims looking for a city that's, that's to come. Well, in the medieval church, the early church in our own day, people ask the question, what is, what is our day? Is our day a theocracy? Is it Christendom after Christ? A the theocracy after Christ looks like Christendom? Or are we living as exiles and wanderers still? And for much of church history, under the, um, under the influence of, of Constantinianism, they decided, no, we're not exiles. We're, we're living in a theocracy. We're living in a benevolent sort of Christian empire. Um, well, how do, how do we describe our own days? We're not living in a theocracy. We're, we're exiles and wanderers. And it turns out we would say the medieval church, were, they were living as exiles and wanderers too. They may not have, have always recognized it. but but we don't live in a theocracy. Uh, There will be divine rule directly, God ruling over his people um, in the new age. But in this present evil age, we're we're pilgrims and wanderers. And so in times of exile, it turns out in times of persecution and exile, the tension, the distinction is always strong um, between believers and unbelievers the city of God and the city of man one one last question yeah David. Was, uh, Constantine actually by... well no that's one of the uh, yeah I mean, no I mean that's that's the what we do have what what does seem to be uh, authentic original tells a story about Constantine being uh, supposedly converted by by these visions he had before battle um, and and to the extent that we know about his conversion, that's, that's what we know. Um, I, I doubt, I think most historians doubt that this interaction between Pope Sylvester Stallone and, and Constantine ever, ever really happened. <laughs> it's pretty, pretty unlikely. Uh, nonetheless, I mean, in, in times, you know, the medieval period was a time when, well, you didn't have a lot of documents that you needed. You know, to make bureaucracies and legal things run, you need a lot of documents. And sometimes, when you didn't have the documents, you needed to just produced them after the fact. And that's clearly what happened. Uh, unfortunately, in this tug- of war between Rome, the Pope and the emperor, um, the Pope used and in fact, it turns out a previous pope was probably responsible for um, forging this document. Um, they used and relied upon fake. Fraudulent evidence in order to claim superiority, um, which, if anything, I think represents the the love of man principle, not not the love of God that Augustine imagined. So we have to stop there. Let's uh, pray. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, gracious Father, we are uh, mindful of our own uh, fallenness, our own sinfulness. We um, hope not simply to to point fingers uh, at foolish people in the past, but um, to recognize and in some of the confusing times in church history, but nonetheless, you have preserved your, your people. And we, we celebrate your victory uh, with the psalmist over, over nature, over those who would attack your heavenly city, indeed, uh, your victory over uh, all the nations. Um, though the nations rage, you are our present help. Um, you've come near to us in Christ our Lord. Uh, and you've also sent your spirit to be our comforter uh, and to lead us into all truth. So be our our refuge and our strength. Uh, Give us humility and not pride, we ask on this Lord's day uh, and until the end of days, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen.